Uh, I have won some trophies in my day, a lot like Jeremy. I have won, um, I have lots of participation ones that were a thrill when I was a kid. But I do have some very special ones uh, that are ones from like the first time I hit a home run in Little League. You know, I have that ball, which just means the world to me. Uh, and, and this question partially came up. It, it has to do with what we're looking at today in a parable, but it also has to do with because I just saw this picture yesterday online. Um, of Zela, who just won the National Spelling Bee. This is an incredible feat. We got a little applause for her, absolutely. She, she is a 14-year-old from New Orleans who just won the 2021 uh, Scripps National Spelling Bee. She's the first African-American to win it, which is, which is really cool. Um, and when they first interviewed her, one of the first things she said was, I guess I just got lucky and got the right words, which I just love. I love when you meet like the amount of work they put in. She was talking about they do like 13,000 words a day. You'd spend upwards to seven hours a day studying just lists of words, uh, which sounds just terrible. But um, the work that went into this, and then they say, you just won this. And you say, well, I guess I just lucked out. I got the right words. This is so cool. So she's hoisting this trophy, and I'm reading this article about her, and it says she also has won trophies for other things, like she has three Guinness World Records under her belt. She's 14 years old. She's done more than any of us, all of us combined. She has the most basketballs dribbled simultaneously. She dribbled six basketballs for 30 seconds. I don't know how that works. That's incredible. I can do, I can do one for 30 seconds. She has the most basketball bounces, which is 307 in 30 seconds. That's a lot of bouncing. And then she has the most bounce juggles in one minute. That's 255, of course. We all know that record, right? Uh, whatever that is. Um, I, I was so encouraged by just reading about, she, uh, she loves to find new things. They said, what's next for you? And she said, well, I have lots of other interests. I'm hoping to maybe master something else, which she probably will, right? In a, in a year or two, we're gonna see her picture a totally different category, right? So now she's a Guinness basketball record holder and a national spelling record holder. She has some pretty impressive trophies <laughs> in her home, um, at, which is just a really cool thing. She's the kind of person that when I read an article about her, I think, you have done more with your life than I will ever do with my life. I, I kind of can, in, in a joking way, but then in a pre pretty real way, Moments of like, what was I doing when I was 14? And what have you been doing? And, and I start pretty quickly, we've talked about this before, how quickly like comparison becomes a thing. And then I think I'm not as good as her and, and what's wrong with me? And then comparison sometimes for me takes over and pride takes over and I just go, well, I'm better than her. I can drive a car. She can't drive a car. Let me see her try to drive my car. Uh, it, it becomes this thing where I wanna feel like I'm better than someone else or look down on someone else. Uh, it's kind of this uh, yucky feeling that comes up. Maybe this is just me, but in a moment where I feel like I have to think, how can I be better, or am I better? Or, or like, sometimes in the same moment, I wanna be better than someone, and I also feel like I'm just not worthy of, of much. So today we are in a parable. We're actually in our third parable um, that we're talking about prayer. We took we kind of a mini-series within our series for the summer of parables. These are these incredible stories Jesus tells to give us a picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. He uncovers this great news that he's this king that has come from this kingdom that is what the kingdom we're looking for. And we took three weeks to look at the parables that talk about prayer. 
And so we've been able to consider and think, what do our own prayer lives look like? And what is the, how does the gospel apply to prayer? So first we looked um, in Luke 11 uh, at this prayer where a friend came at midnight and, then, uh, and so they had to go to the neighbors and say, hey, I don't have any bread for them. Would you give me bread? And they, were, they said sh- they had shameless audacity, this boldness uh, in, in saying, I, I need to be hospital. I need this, I need this um, bread for my friend. And we, and we talked about what that looks like to believe that we have, uh, uh, that our Heavenly Father is actually family, has made us family, that he actually listens to us and he gets good gifts. And if we believe those things, which are all made possible because of Jesus, then we can pray boldly. And so it was an encouragement to us. What if our prayers became more bold, more uh, truly transparent? What if we really bared ourselves in front, of, in front of God and said, this is really what I need? Not maybe general prayers, but like, this is what, God, I need. And, and we were persistent in that because our second parable last week was about the widow who came to the judge and she was persistent and she didn't stop asking. And how much greater we have uh, a, a God who doesn't, uh, who, the, than this unjust judge. And so we, we, we heard this, this uh, phrase from Dallas Willard that says, what if we thought of our lives as a praying life and not a prayer life? So a prayer life is where you kind of have these just blips where you go like, every day for a few minutes I pray, and I pray again. And he says often that just discourages us, and sometimes we just stop praying because we can't get the right segments of our life. We can't get our prayer schedule. So what if you consider all of your life all the time is in communion with God and that you always have a praying life. You're always communing with God and always coming before him. And so he encourages us to consider a praying life that's all the time rather than a lot of blips in a prayer life. And so we not only looked at being praying boldly, but also praying often. And last week someone said, hey, that word should probably maybe be always. And I said, great edit. So it's now, it's now always. Forget that I ever said often. Always. <laughs> um, so we want to encourage you, we want to encourage ourselves to pray boldly. Jesus also tells this parable to encourage us to pray always. And lastly, today we get to look at the last parable where Jesus is referring to prayer, and, and we are encouraged to pray humbly. We people who pray boldly, that we're always praying in a praying life, and that we come to God humbly. And this one brings us to a, a painting that I love. So after three years of work, a French painter by the name of Eugene Bernand, this is his painting here, had finished a work called The Parables. This will be like his greatest work. He paints 84 pictures of the parables uh, from Scripture. He paints this uh, series depicting these parables because he believed that um, the the pictures and illustrations he was seeing at the time depicting biblical scenes didn't seem real. They didn't seem like people he could relate to. They didn't like, uh, they didn't uh, cause you to have like an emotional reaction. And he wanted these to look as if they were, uh, you were actually there with them. And so he paints these really incredible paintings, 84 of them, of the parables. Originally they were just printed in a book called the parables in French, quickly became very popular. It was reprinted in German and in English. It was used throughout Protestant and Catholic churches, which was a big deal at the time. Um, and they, they spread all over, eventually all over the world. There were these books and these p- reproductions of these paintings going up all over. People were really uh, actually felt like scripture was coming alive because of the way he was painting his paintings. 
He wanted to depict these so that they looked real because he wasn't impressed with the illustrations of the time. He wanted them to come alive so that the stories Jesus was telling would be real to people, and he wanted them to actually consider the parables so that they would actually consider the kingdom of God, which I, lo I love that. This is one of my favorite ones. I, this one actually gives me a little bit of like a emotional uh, response. Um, it just captures this moment of the parable we are looking at today. This is the parable often called of the tax collector and the Pharisee as they enter the temple um, to pray. So we're going to go there now. This is in Luke 18. We'll have the scripture on the screen. Otherwise, if you have a Bible and you like to, to follow along or take notes, uh, I'd love for you to do that too. This is Luke 18. This is today as our parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I'll just read it through first. It's not real long. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I love you. just starts with like, hey, everyone who's self-righteous and you look down on people, this one's for you. Uh, does that make you want to listen to it? <laughs> Everyone goes, well, that's not me. It's probably for this guy. Uh, here we go. And the parable is this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's there with him. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. That ends the Pharisee's prayer. Now, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this, uh, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who, have, who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a pretty popular uh, uh, parable. You may have heard this. You may, this is a classic one as when your kids to color the pages in of the tax collector and the Pharisee praying. This is a really common parable, even when talking about the basics of what does it look like to be a Christian? What does faith in Christ look like? What does faith alone look like? Um, and so, so we're, we're going to jump in and say we're really going to focus on what this says about our prayer life. Because uh, we're going to get opportunities in some other parables to continue to talk about what it means to be self-righteous, um, to maybe think we're better. But this one, we're going we're gonna to focus on this. So this one starts, to some who are confident of their own, uh, own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, he would have been telling this parable, um, and there would have been actual Pharisees uh, in the area around him, maybe even listening, probably listening in, or he wouldn't have right, said that. Um, and so he would have been saying, hey, maybe not directly to a person who's saying, hey, if you're someone who maybe looks down on other people, this one's for you. He's talking about this word righteousness. So if you're unfamiliar with it, righteousness uh, is a word maybe we hear, but we're not always sure what that means. In this, what he's saying is this is someone who has, has been made right, who has like rightness to them, who, who is like in right relationship with God, who is a person who is doing everything right, who is just like their, even their whole being is correct. Um, so if this is true, then uh, this really is a, is a parable for all of us. So let's move on. Let, let's, let's unpack the parable a little bit. Two men went up to the temple to pray. There's two of them. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Like our last parable, we talked about the widow and the judge. Jesus sets these stories up and he gives out two, two titles to people that in the time he would have said Pharisee and tax collector and there would have been instant 
emotions, instant thoughts of who these people were. Instant kind of like, oh, okay, I know who those people are because you said what they were. You know, kind of now, like if you say certain words, people go, okay, I know a lot about them. And you, you might even instantly have an opinion or lots of opinions about them, right? Like maybe if you mention like a Republican or a Democrat, you might instantly have a feeling. Or maybe it's a sense of like when you're talking to someone and you might, um, this, this could just be me, but I like am trying to classify them as fast as I can as I'm just meeting someone. So I know what category they're in so that I know everything about them from the three minutes I met them. So this is, Jesus sets this up, Connie says, hey, there's a tax collector and a Pharisee. And everyone goes, okay, we know what, <laughs> we know what these guys are about because you just gave us these very clear, very distinctive categories. And so what this should probably does is sets up this Pharisee who is a person who had been ad- admired. And respected, the Pharisees were a group of people who, um, who re- were responding to the Romans coming in, ruling over much of that area in the Middle East and much of the world. Uh, and, and they were concerned because these people who were God's chosen people, these Jewish people, were becoming more Roman. They were like looking more like the Romans. Maybe they were like walking away from some of their customs. Uh, they were concerned they weren't worshiping God anymore. Maybe they were starting to slowly worship different versions of Roman gods. So the Pharisees were becoming concerned about that. And so they kind of like hunkered down. They kind of bunkered themselves down into their religious lives. They clung more and more to the law to what it looked like, what you had to do to make sure you still looked like a Jewish person and not a Roman person or, or just a pagan who didn't worship God. They became to, to cling closer to those rules that God had set up, the laws that he had set up. And, and Jesus, when he comes, uh, it, it wants to show off they were clinging less to God himself and more to these rules in this group. They wanted people to be in this group. I think they were really truly scared of people becoming more Roman and more pagan than they were faithful Jewish people. So this kind of, this not even kind of, this began to divide their community into religious and not religious, into God's people and not God's people. And that was a lot of the Pharisees' time was spent making sure people were still faithful or what they, they had set up as looking like faithful followers of God. So when you say Pharisee, they say this is a person who's admired and respected. They're a religious leader for this community. They followed the rules. They were upright. They would use the word righteous. They were expected to visit the temple. Of course there's a Pharisee going to the temple. That's what they do. They pray. They, they probably pray all day and all night. They're so holy. I wish I could be holy like a Pharisee. There would have been a lot attached to a Pharisee going to pray. This would have been probably a, a time during the day where they came into the temple to pray to be with God. Would, that would not have been a surprise. But to say there's also a tax collector, huh? Why would, those are people who don't. What, are, what is the tax collector up to? I would think if I had heard this story, I would go, oh, this is going to be interesting because that tax collector is up to something. He's going to like steal the Pharisee's money or he's messing with the temple. Maybe he's scoping it out so they can like do a heist later. I don't know if tax collectors do heists. <laughs> I'd love to see like a first century heist movie. Uh, the tax collector, what, what's he going? Tax collector, they were disliked. They were hated. They were really seen as kind of the bottom of society, not because of their income, but because their souls were often described as dark 
and wicked and lifeless. They were the word that people use and they just like if they just didn't like you and they were, your friend was really angry with you, he'd just call you a tax collector. That was like the, the swear word of the time. They actually worked with the Romans. This is a big part of why they were unlike. The, the Romans used them as local people to collect the taxes. And sometimes the tax collectors are often would take extra money for themselves. They could be actually very wealthy. They were very unexpected in the temple. They were not someone that, if Jesus is telling a story about the temple, you'd expect him to say, there's a Pharisee, of course, is going to pray, of course he would, and there's a tax collector. What is going on? So you'd be interested in this parable because you'd say, what's going to happen with these two? And he tells you actually, I think, a story that you would expect, but his conclusion is very different than what we would expect. And so he goes on, he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. Say, so, yeah, makes sense. And the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Makes sense. They're not like other people. They're so good. They're so right with God. I'm not like those robbers, those evildoers, those adulterers. Those are terms you might even add to tax collectors. Or even like this tax collector. He's, he's standing in the temple praying, and he says, thank you, God, for not making me like those evil people. You know, even like this, this guy, this tax collector. You wonder if the tax collector even, does he hear him say that about him? And he says, oh, God, I fast twice a week, which is, was a good thing. Unsure of his motive, and I give a tenth of all I get. God, I do the things I'm supposed to do. Thank you for not making me like these sinners. I think at this point, the story kind of would check out. You'd say, yeah, he's a good Pharisee. He follows the rules. Pharisees should not be robbers or adulterers or tax collectors. And then we hear, so what's happening with the tax collector? The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. Yeah, good. He shouldn't look up to heaven. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve to look up to heaven. He beats his breast. He says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. When I first uh, ever read this story, I remember being told ahead of time what, what Jesus' uh, conclusion was to it. So I went, oh, that's good. You know, because we, we know, we, we already read that before, that the, the tax collector is justified somehow and the Pharisee isn't. But I think in the moment, if you could just put yourself in Jesus telling this story for the first time, you'd say, that makes sense. The tax collector should be on his knees. He should be beating his chest. He should say, God, I'm such a sinner. You'd say, yeah, tax collector, you are a sinner. You're terrible. You steal money from people. You're behaving in a way that God does not want you to behave. You're bad news. You'd want to look to the Pharisee and say, yeah, you're right. This, this guy is bad. Thank God we're so good. I think this is where, as Jesus tells this parable, there would be like the scratch in the record. There'd be like the be rumbling like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you're right. Those tax collectors are bad news. And then he would say this phrase, and I think it would get silent. And everyone would turn to him. And there might be whispers like, what did he just say? There's, he must have misspoke. He says, I tell you this, 
man, this, this tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home that day justified, made right. God saw the tax collector and had mercy on him, and he was made right. Because for all those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled, and those who are humble, who have humbled themselves, will be exalted. It's this, it's this flip that we see over and over in the Gospels where Jesus says those who are greater will actually be less and those who are less will actually be greater, right? Those who are first will be last and last will be first. There's this flip in the Gospel. This, I think, is where people go, what? Wait, wait, wait. We agree that tax collector is a sinner. He's bad. Remember, we're doing all the right stuff. I don't get... He said, the one who says... Before God, I am a sinner, I am not worthy, is the one who actually will be lifted up. And the one who comes with a motive and a heart that says, at least I'm not that person, I'm better than that person, they will be humbled and brought down. So there's this wild switch. We go from a Pharisee who's actually broken now in his self-righteousness. He actually becomes the one uh, who's broken, whose heart is filthy. And now the tax collector becomes the one we look to for what it looks like to stand before God. This, this is incredible. We are exposed to this thing that happens and happens in all of our hearts because we are broken of comparing ourselves, of, of spending our time in prayer, uh, uh, comparing at least we're not them. Uh, God, how, how good am I? Our prayers might become all about us trying to, to shift to get ourselves in the right position rather than just say, God, you are enormous and incredible. Our, our, our prayers can become like, how can I do this right to get the trophy that I'm looking for? It becomes really a manipulation that looks just like the pagan worship at the time. Down the street, there's a temple that the Pharisee and a tax collector walked by, and people are walking into that temple with coins and with food and with incense and with spices, and they leave it on the altar, and they say to their God, here, I brought this for you. I've done the stuff you want. Now I want you to do this stuff for me in hopes that they can trade with their God or maybe manipulate their God to do what they want. And Jesus is saying, that isn't how this works. When you're in the temple of God, when you're standing before Yahweh, he's not saying, did you do everything that I asked? Are you doing all this stuff? Because then I'll show you mercy. He's saying, I, I want you to recognize and just be honest and bold and humble and say, I am broken. I'm broken and I need cleaning from the inside out. I'm filthy inside. My heart turns to things that aren't you. I need you. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. We're broken in that we think righteousness comes from us, that we somehow do all the right things and can get all the things in the right place instead of coming from the hands of Jesus. I find this, I've been thinking about this lately, and um, I find this sometimes when I'm praying. I've had this in, in, a, in like small group setting 
where I have a thing, uh, we're like going around sharing, hey, what's some stuff we can pray about? And it's one of those weeks where you're like, I feel convicted of like, okay, I really do need to share this thing that's kind of, it's not a great thing that's going on in my heart. And, and we're going around the circle or however, popcorn praying, however you guys do it in your small group. And someone else shares something that in my categories is a worse sin. And I go like, oh, that's good. At least his thing is worse. So when I share mine, I won't sound as bad as him. Oh, he, re- he really sounds like he's working on some stuff. And I go like, oh, brother, yeah, you're really working on some stuff. I'll be praying for you. And even if it's not out loud, I have this moment where I go, thank God I'm not as bad of a sinner as that guy. Right? And then, and then the cool thing is God in, the, in that moment goes like, the thing you just did, you could confess that. That's really kind of not helpful. Um, we have this thing where we, how quick we want to compare. We want to even not be honest. God knows exactly what that is, but he's calling us here to be people who come not, not, showing, not, not thinking of it as from an outside, inside thing, but from an inside, outside thing. So he's saying, I want you to stand before me, and, and, it, and it's best for you to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm broken. I don't know what I'm doing. I had a moment early in youth ministry where I was standing with, um, next to two gentlemen who were, had been youth volunteers for many, many years, 20, 30 years. And they were like pros, right? So they're the kind of guys who like any high school guy could come to them and they would meet and the high school guy would leave like crying. And he'd be like, I love Jesus more because of these men. (laughs) It's like, teach me how to like make disciples like you did. They're just great men of God. And we were, and and I knew that. So I was always kind of trying to stand by them and like, listen, how how do they do things? How do they talk to people? And um, there was, uh, we were just like in a gym and all these kids were running around playing. And we were talking, and one of them said, I think he could sense that I was nervous. And I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And he said, uh, hey, you know, um, none of us know what we're doing, right? I said, what? Oh, no, no. Don't be humble, man. You're like, you're amazing. And he said, no, no, no. That's the secret. None of us know what we're doing. <laughs> we just kind of try stuff, and you hope it works, and you just pray God will use it. Uh, it was like this incredible weight lifted off me. I went, really? And I kind of looked around, and then another guy was like, yeah, 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 none of us have a clue what we're doing. And then I found that to be true in other settings, like in a job setting where I'm hanging out, like, how do you figure this out? I'm like, we don't really all know what we're doing. We're just doing our best. And all of a sudden, over time, uh, I feel like over and over I'm learning. I don't really know what I'm doing. And there's this great freedom in coming and saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know the one who knows what's going on. C.S. Lewis Um, says it this way. I love this. He says, we must lay before him what is actually in us, not what ought to be in us. This is a prayer that like, that is healing, that lifts a burden off us. I I don't think Jesus just says, be humble because I want you to be humble. So he doesn't say, come and be humble. And if you're humble enough, then you're good enough for me. He's saying, I want you to come honestly with who you are. I want you to come just raw who you are and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I am a sinner. I am turning to other things. We are built for this to actually be healing. In James 5, we hear, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The way God made us, the way he constructed us, the way our brains and our hearts work to actually confess, not come and say, hey, I got all this stuff together. I'm doing pretty good. 
to say, I am broken. I need you, Lord. And with others, I am broken. Have mercy on me. Actually is what heals us. Instead of saying, hey, I'm all healed up, I'm good. And we just live with these wounds and this hurt. This is how we are healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The righteous person comes from Jesus' righteousness. We see this in 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's not even like a a category. I love this verse because it doesn't just say, hey, you know, sometimes when you say you have no sin, you probably have some sin. He says, hey, you say you have no sin, you always are deceiving yourself because you always have some sin. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How do we become righteous? How do we get rid of our unrighteousness? We confess that we aren't righteous. And then we allow God to make us righteous, to forgive our sins. There's a phrase we use in our house because sometimes when uh, things happen in our house, there's sometimes there's like a mystery of like who did it, even though we kind of all maybe know who did it. Uh, and so there's that like, oh, I'd love for you just to confess. And so we often say, what's going to happen if you confess? We're going to forgive you. And so it has become this mantra like, I know, you'll forgive me. But there's something different about coming to someone if you know the outcome will be, hey, I've done this wrong against you, and you know they're going to forgive you. It's different than if you're like, I don't know how you're going to react. Uh, And we know our God, who's faithful and just, will forgive us. And so we can come to him. I've been reading through this book. Uh, I like this. These are short. I'd encourage you if you're into like, one-page quick devotionals. Uh, this guy draws like a cool illustration for everyone too about prayer. Uh, I've been encouraged by Sky's uh, book on prayer. And this is one of the things he says about confession. Confession is a vital means of growing us in God's likeness by first seeing and then admitting what is unlike God in our lives. It's a discipline that forces us to abandon the false self-image we'd prefer to believe so that we must gaze at our true selves. This idea of humility that Jesus is talking about isn't that he is encouraged by with the tax collector, isn't a like, oh yeah, it's good to just be bad and then just say you're bad. He's saying, we just want to see our real self, our, our true selves. And that's what confession does. The human capacity for self-deception is almost limitless. And if left unchecked, it can transplant us into a fantasy in which we need no grace, where we are always righteous, always correct always pure. The the purpose of the church is not to be a people who are always righteous, always correct, and always pure. The purpose of our church is to gather around the person who is always righteous, always correct, and always pure. This is where this gets really tricky. So we start believing if we can just all look right, we almost don't need Jesus at some point. Because we know in the end, Jesus is the one who brings us righteousness. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus for us, to bring us to God. He's put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. We have this Jesus. Again, the gospel changes everything. We never make ourselves righteous. Our righteousness only comes from the righteous one who made himself wrong to make us right. He became broken, filthy, 
unrighteous to make us righteous. So as we look at this great painting, um, consider this in your own life as we kind of end our time here. Consider what it looks like to, and what times you are the one standing proud, big, God, thank you that you didn't make me those people. Thank you that I'm, I'm not bad. Here's all the good stuff that I'm doing. Are you happy with me? Can, can you now give me what I want? Consider what your motivation is in that. I want to I encourage us this summer to be people who uh, take steps in thinking what does it look like to pray boldly in our prayers? What does it look like to have a praying life, to always be praying? Maybe it's not a set-aside time that you got to check off, but what if it looks look like to always be walking with God because we are, and to be praying, and to be people who humbly come to him. We don't have to come to him. The burden has been lifted. None of us know what we're doing. To come and say, God, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm a sinner. I need you. I need you. And let his righteousness fill us, and out of that come love and care and obedience. A few questions here as we're going to bring the the band back up to help us worship uh, more. Do you know that Jesus became wrong and broken to make us right? Maybe that's new or maybe that's something you've heard. Today's a great day to say, I want to bend my knee to Jesus. Today I want to turn and say, yeah, I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus and turn to him. Maybe consider what is pride? When does pride swell up in you? When I'm talking today, what are the moments in your life when you when it's the hardest not to say, oh, at least I'm not them. At least I don't do that. Thank God my family doesn't do that kind of stuff. Thank God in our family we don't have that issue. When does that swell up and why? Consider why. Maybe, maybe you have friends who you could even help process that with. And then who can you confess honestly with? Who do you have that you can confess with and, and with before God and be healed? And, and I've been thinking a lot about this. What would it look like if our church prayed like these tax collectors? What would it look like if our lives were lived out in a way that we, uh, we cried out, have mercy on us, we're sinners? What does that look like to a community, to a coworker, to a family member, if they see you as someone who's saying, I don't know what I'm doing. Thank God Jesus does. The cha- that would change how people see the church. And, and I think it would cause people to want to be drawn to a place with broken people who are clinging to a very real and very whole and very pure Jesus. Um, there's, a, there's this cool book called The Book of Common Prayer, which is used uh, historically in lots of churches. Um, and they actually stand like before, at, throughout the service, maybe you grew up with this, like with liturgy that you stand and like corporately say a prayer. And this is one of my favorite prayers from there. So I wanted us to, this, I think this is a good way for us to enter into some time of worship. We're going to pray this prayer. This is one of the opening prayers um, of confession. And so actually as a church, you can stand in like corporately, we can confess um, together. And really it's just a long version of the text collector's prayer. I love the language of this. So I'm going to encourage us, if you're willing, if you're able, to stand up now with me. We're going to pray this prayer together. As we enter into a time of worship, then our worship team is going to lead us in worship, praising that Jesus who's so good uh, before we head out here. So uh, I'll just start this for us. We'll uh, pray this together. Most merciful God, 
we confess that we have sinned against thee in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of thy son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in thy will and walk in thy ways. To the glory of thy name, amen.